Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy and Kurt Levins, the hockey sage. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hello, David. Hello, Hello, Kurt. Hello, hello, Bruce. Nice Nice day here in Edmonton. How's it there on Pender, Bruce, uh, Kurt? It is a spectacular July afternoon. Ah, shut up. We're we're just so jealous of you looking on Pendrath, and we don't even want to think about it. We don't. Let's. I think we should drop Kurt from the call, Bruce. What do you say? No, oh, I'm thinking. I, I'm thinking Kurt's given given us an hour out of a spectacular day. We should treasure that. Oh, that you are. Such I, I know. You're I'm, always. I'm certainly yeah. looking forward to hearing Kurt t- tell me why why I'm delighted that the Oilers got Duncan Keith. I need I well, need some reassurance. We're gonna well, have one, a, of, the, one of the reasons I'm one of the reasons I'm so happy we're doing this call today is this is three reasonable people having a discussion about Duncan Keith and there ain't oh, a lot yeah. of that going and and there ain't a lot of that going on these days so I'm pretty happy to be here. So. And you haven't been following Bruce's Twitter feed on this Duncan Keith thing, Kurt is what I'm gonna suggest. He's hot. He's hot and yes. He, Bruce yes. Bruce Bruce wrote a very pointed post today. I thought it was excellent describing his opinion. And Kurt, you've done the same. So I'm kind of in the middle. I don't have a strong opinion on Duncan Keith because I didn't see him play last year and I don't have analytics that I personally trust in order to rate the player. So, I, you know, I think that the it's pretty clear now that the Oilers, Ken Holland, the Oilers GM, thought he's he thinks, he's convinced he's getting the top four NHL D-man for Duncan Keith and Duncan Keith was worth, worth the price. I had posited that maybe there was a financial aspect to this trade, which had also been rumored by others. There may be, but that certainly wasn't brought up in Ken Holland at all in their thinking terms of this you know the Oilers having to be careful with their dollars and you know that was we saw 20 25 years of that with the Oilers that wasn't raised by Ken Holland so we're going to push that to the side and what Ken Holland stressed was he thinks he he's won this trade because he's gotten a top four D-man he didn't trust Caleb Jones to be that so he thinks Keith will be worth his salary and he thinks that next year at least and probably the year after Duncan Keith will be a better player than Caleb Jones. And then uh, the third round picks thrown in there for Chicago, just to add uh, insult to injury. Uh, no, I, again, I don't have an opinion. Like I really don't. I, I'm, I, I think it's a coin flip whether this works out or not. And I hope it does, but you two have come out more strongly than, than I have, whether this is a good move or a bad move. And we're going to start with you, Kurt. What is the one or two things? What, okay. What is your best argument? And then I'm going to go to Bruce with the same thing. What is your best argument that this was a good move by Ken Holland? If you were so to I've, convince someone. So I've got a bunch, but I'll just start with my best one and then Bruce rebuts, correct? Okay, yeah. Bruce I'll, gives start, I'll start with, I did read Bruce's column and I thought it was excellent. And I stand by what I said before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it is very easy for Bruce and I to have differing opinions on this, uh, yet do so respectfully. And that's something that Bruce does consistently. 100%. So, Yeah. Um, okay, I'll go first. Um, I honestly think it's kind of irrelevant who won the trade. Um, because to me, the biggest overarching question in this entire debate is, are the Edmonton Oilers better today than before they acquired Duncan Keith? And I think the answer is clearly yes. They are a better team today than they were yesterday. Uh, and 
We can quibble and argue on the price and we'll agree on some things and disagree on others. But the fact of the matter is, Duncan Keith playing 2LD for this club next year, if you changed nothing else, makes us a better hockey team. And the absence of Oscar Clefbaum adds a punctuation mark to that. Um, but that's my, that's my argument. In a hockey trade, who got the better player? Well, Edmonton did. Uh, Kurt, I just want to follow up with one question on that. I just want to dig a little deeper. Why do you think, what are you basing your opinion that, that Duncan Keith is definitely making the Oilers better and is the, is the better player in this trade? Why, how, why do you say that? How can you be sure? Yep, fair question. I'll break it down into two halves. First of all, on, on the Caleb Jones front, uh, I haven't seen Caleb Jones uh, perform as a top 4D man for more than a handful of games in a row. Um, I think Caleb Jones probably is an NHL defenseman, um, but I don't know. Uh, it's quite quite frequent that fourth-round picks don't turn into NHL defensemen, and it's possible he's a 6-7. Um, fact of the matter is he was given the opportunity. He didn't grab it. He didn't win the job. Guys like Slater Cuckoo and Chris Russell played ahead of him last year for a reason. So... I don't think that Caleb Jones played up to expectations. That's one half. The other half is Duncan Keith. I watched Duncan Keith play last year, but a handful of times. And as a result, I'd suggest that the sample size is so small, what I think based on what I saw is practically irrelevant. So Agreed. instead, yeah. so instead, what I tried to do was I tried to listen to and talk with hockey people for their opinion on Duncan Keith. So, so what does that mean? I talked to people who stand on and behind NHL benches, and I've listened to other people in those same positions that have been talked to by other interviewers. And I feel I have an abundance of hockey person opinion now that Duncan Keith is still very much an NHL player, is still very much a three, four quality player uh, in the NHL. And if guys that stand on and behind NHL benches say that about Duncan Keith. And these aren't guys that work for the Oilers or the Blackhawks. Then I trust those opinions. You know, I, as you guys know, I come from a hockey family. Members of my family played in the NHL. I have a level of trust with people that, that, that work at that level. And so I am taking their advice uh, as the evidence behind my opinion. So there's the Caleb Jones half and the Duncan Keith half. Solid presentation, Kurt. Bruce, what is your best argument uh, that the Chicago Blackhawks won this trade and the Edmonton Oilers did not? Well, I think the Blackhawks have already won the trade from their perspective, and you, you, you wind up hoping that it's a win-win trade, that bo <clears throat> both teams wind up getting what they want. And to me, it's the Oilers that have taken on by far the lion's share of the risk in this deal. Uh, Keith, uh, I mean... We'll see what Keith does on the ice. I have a tremendous amount of respect for him as a player. Uh, all that he's done over the years, uh, he was certainly one of the best, very best defensemen in the league for a good solid 10 years. Uh, won a share of awards, trophies, Stanley Cups, Olympic gold medals. I mean, all that stuff that Ken Holland values is great. Now, the thing is, he won all that stuff between 2009 and 15, when he was between 26 and 31 years old. And since then, he's, you know, he's on the standard kind of uh, career aging curve, uh, which is nothing against Duncan Keith or anybody, but, it, you know, it happens over time. Uh, and 
when you look at the statistical output, it's consistent with the guy on, a, on an aging curve. Now, my problem isn't so much with Keith. I mean, we'll see what he does. My problem is that I think that taking him on at full salary is uh, uh, um, unforced error, frankly, by, by the Oilers. I mean, Keith is getting the same salary now from the Oilers, the same cap hit from the Oilers that he got from Chicago when he won those three Stanley Cups when he was playing 25 minutes a night. And here's a guy who asked to be traded to Edmonton. I got two years left on the tail of that long contract, where finally his cap hit is probably above his his value on the the ice. The Oilers are saying we want to put him in a reduced role from 23 minutes to 20 or 18. I'm reading various things. Well, why should they then take on the full bore uh, of that cap hit instead of having Chicago retain? I mean, David, you wrote a column about 30 to 50 percent. I'd even argue 25 percent. 25% of 5.54 million is 4.16 million. Well, guess how much Oscar Kleffbaum makes that you're going to get on on uh, long-term in, injured reserve. They've got that in that format. But paying a premium to get a 38-year-old guy the other team is looking to move on from and then throwing in a, a good player going, a good decent prospect player going the other way with a 24-year-old defenseman with 100 NHL games under his uh, belt and a draft pick like it seemed like Edmonton was adding and adding and adding to this trade when the trade was actually done at the behest of Duncan Keith and the Blackhawks well they both got what they wanted whether Edmonton gets it I mean Edmonton's invested a lot in this trade and uh, I think they've kind of stuck their necks out a little bit Kurt response I won't argue that I think it would have been better if Edmonton could have retained some I agree with uh, both of you gentlemen on that. Um, Ken Holland was pretty clear. And from what I understand from behind the scenes, they could have retained some salary, but it would have cost Edmonton either a better prospect or an additional piece. So, so what do you want to save the money? Um, and I think that Ken Holland at the end of the day decided, well, I'm not going to give you another prospect, so I'll, I'll, I'll take on the money. I, I feel very strongly that was the conversation. I, I, it's my belief that Ken Holland talked about salary retention and that, and that Stan Bowman uh, said, uh, okay, but, but here's the cost of that. Here's the other thing that I'll add in. Um, I do not believe that Chicago was planning to play next season without Duncan Keith. Um, I think they preferred if Duncan Keith would have stayed with the Blackhawks. Uh, and I don't think it was a fait accompli that they were going to trade him. And I don't think it was ever an, in, in, an eventuality that they were going to buy him out. So there is, a, there is a line of thinking out there that Chicago had to unload him. I don't think that's accurate. Uh, and if it isn't accurate, then that changes the math on the whole equation. So, Kurt, I have uh, another follow-up question for you. So we, we heard Koskinen, the owners might have been trying to move Koskinen, for instance, yeah. as part of the deal. So let's say that this negotiation is ongoing and uh, Ken Holland wants them to retain salary. And the Chicago GM's position is that, uh, oh, no, if you if you want to retain salary, you're going to have to add a player. You're going to have to add, let's say, Raphael Lavoie or Dmitry Samarukov or some horrible thing, suggestion like that. But, you know, that would really hurt the owners. Let's say that was it. So, so Ken Holland then frames that as he's he's boxed in by that, but the and and that he doesn't want to squeeze Chicago. 
uh, because that's not how business is done in the NHL. So I'm accepting that, that that's not how business is done, that you don't squeeze people and like, but um, couldn't a respectful response that isn't a squeeze being saying, oh, I'm, oh well, that, if that's your, your best offer, Stan, I'm going to have to walk away from this. That, you know, this player isn't worth $5.5 million a year. Um, he's, he's, he's worth, you know, we, we think he's worth about four. Um, you know, we see him as a second pairing left D man. Uh, he's above, we see above, above average still defenseman in the NHL right now, second pairing, you know, the average, uh, player in the NHL makes 3.1 million. We're going to, we're going to, for the intangibles, we're going to add about a million dollars to that. And we're going to stay worth four, but we really do need you to, to eat the rest. And, and I understand that you don't want to do that. So at this point, uh, respectfully, we're going to have to walk away from this deal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's not squeezing them. That's 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 you have to be prepared to walk away and say no and I, and and I'm not a negotiator so this is just me reading things about negotiating so I'm mm-hmm. way over my head here but in negotiation I've heard that's the the that you've got to be able to say no and walk away mm-hmm. in a negotiation and if you can't do that you're putting yourself in a bad position and I just got the feeling listen to Ken Holland that that no it, it didn't seem like no was on the table for him. Yeah. And and that's just an impression. It could, I, I could be wrong about that. So what do you think about that argument, Kurt? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that. And I want to t- then turn it over to Bruce. Um, let's consider the fact that the Oilers had their pro meetings and they made a list of guys that would come to Edmonton that could play in the position that Oscar Clefbaum wasn't going to be able to play in. And what if Duncan Keith is on the top of that list? Um, so I put the question out there. So if not Duncan Keith, who else? And I go back to that first question I posed, which is someone who is who can play at his level of ability, who is willing to come to Edmund. Because I've heard all sorts of people say, oh, they could have had Suter for a million dollars. Well, Suter's not going to play in Canada. They could have got Martinez. Martinez wasn't coming here. They could have got McCabe. McCabe is only going to play in the United States. There's a much shorter list than I think a lot of people think there is. And if you go to free agency, I think the three people on this call would agree that to get the best guys available in free agency, you are going to pay an inflated price, even with a flat cap. And so I believe all those factors played into the fact that Keith wasn't just an option for them. He was their target and he was their man. I guess they didn't want Nate Schmidt or Nick Letty. Like, cause there's a couple of no. defensemen who are, who are 30. Like they don't have, they never reach the, they never attain the heights that Duncan Keith did. You know, they don't bring that Royal jelly and the intangibles that Duncan Keith did. And I, I, I say that without irony. Like that is no. true. Like Absolutely. that's a fact, but Nate Schmidt, um, Pretty good player. Older there, pretty huh? good player for the Caps in the Stanley Cup year, was he not? And Nick Letty, a uh, pretty good player on the Islanders. The team went far. So, so I just wonder, like, if you just why not those two guys? Like, they're they're under contract. They have to go if you trade them. I believe now Letty may have. They may both have no movement. I don't know. Like, I haven't investigated that. So I just wonder if there were. I think the point you're making is a fair point, Kurt. The orders may have had Keith at the top, and and these the list of potential players is for second, like a really good second pairing defenseman, is much shorter than people think. Both those things I'm going to take as true. Like that is, I'll take that as a fact that 
that's almost certainly the case. But, you know, I hear about Schmidt and I hear about Letty and I think, wow, um, that's kind of enticing because they're still kind of at peak. They're not, they're not below peak like, like Duncan Keith is right now. So it's my thought. Bruce, what's your thought? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, there has to be a short list, but when, when the guy specifically says, I want to be traded to Calgary, Vancouver, Edmonton, or Seattle, and presumably would waive uh, his NMC for the Seattle expansion draft if he's, you know, serious about what he said. So he's he's actually picked out Edmonton, and yet um, Edmonton still wound up paying a premium for him. And if there was any squeezing going on, I mean, the initial offer went from Koskinen and a fourth-round pick in Jones to no Koskinen, a third round, maybe second round pick, and Jones, uh, and oh yeah, I do take this old contract off our hands because we want more room in our 50-man list, and oh yeah, we have to make this trade before the expansion draft, so you have to protect Keith and we can protect someone else. You know, that's a lot of squeezing, seems to me, that went on from Stan Bowman's point of view. Like, if I was a Chicago fan, I'd be pretty pleased with how this came down. Kurt, any final thoughts on the Keith matter? Um, um, well, I could agree with everything that Bruce said and still come back to my original point, which was, mm-hmm. yes, but Edmonton got the best player. This is like the uh, Larson Hall deal, right? Like where we're part of the reason, it's, it's not completely like it, but there's one similarity, which I will focus on now. And the similarity is this. There, there were some people who thought uh, Adam Larson was a very good player coming back. Good player, very good player. But that the deal was bad, that the right. Oilers should have gotten more when they're trading Taylor Hall. They should have got a, a first pick with Taylor, you know, with Adam Larson or a, at least a second pick or something, you know. And I, I think that was a fair comment at the time, although when the final uh, when the final book is written on the Adam Larson Taylor Hall trade, uh, we'll see how that turns out. But so I think it is a, a really fair criticism. And I am in the camp that that thinks that the order should have gotten uh, given up less. The, the Chicago should have been adding the sweeteners, in my view. Even if the orders wanted to move Caleb Jones and, and that would have greased the wheels, Chicago then should have retained and given a draft pick. Like, they should have given the third pick and retained a million and a half. Then the deal, hey, then I'm all over that. You know, then that deal makes sense, a lot more sense to me. So so you're kind of separating out the player, Kurt. And I guess the the, the final question is that Let's say that Bruce and I are right and the Oilers gave up too much. And uh, how much does that hurt the Oilers right now? Because your argument is right now the Oilers are better, Kurt. Yep. And let's say it's, let's say, let's let's assume that Keith is better than than Caleb Jones this coming year. That that's, that's going to happen. And, you know, not every fan's going to agree with that. But let's say that that's, that's the case. How much does the, the all that cap space they used on Keith hurt the Oilers right now? Is my question and my concern, frankly, because the Oilers have a lot of need. They've got a they've got a need in net. They have another, you know, they probably need they need one more defenseman. Probably they need a couple wingers. They they could use a third line center. There's needs all over, the, and then there's going to be needs for money going forward. Uh, even in the second year of Duncan Keith's contract, they're gonna they're gonna have much more of a cap crunch. So how much does this hurt them? right now um overpaying on the contract and let's say all three of us agree on that do we all three agree that maybe the oilers overpaid on the contract that the order that would have been good to 
would have made sense to retain money. Um, yep, I'll give you that. Yep. How much? How much does that hurt the Oilers then? The fact that Ken Holland overpaid in terms of cap hit on the Duncan Keith trade. Bruce. Yeah, maybe it means that uh, a guy like Brandon Saad that might have been available in free agency, they no longer quite have the budget for that, and they have to set their sights a little bit lower. Is the team still better uh, than before? And, and I mean, let's hope that the 38-year-old defenseman, uh, as he will be on Friday, um, has, you know, finds the fountain of youth. Turns back Father Time, all those old cliches, and uh, and and brings it. And I I I really do expect a sort of James Neal bump from the player at least that there will be an insurgent, a, a good start, and a good feeling around the team. And that's worth a lot, you know. I mean, when James Neal came in that first year, even though he only really was hugely productive for one to three months, that got the team off on such a good start, and I think they carried it on. Um, so. I do anticipate that, but whether he covers, you know, $11 million worth of salary cap over two years, uh, I have my doubts, but uh, time will tell. Kurt, what do you think about the, the fact that they overpaid on the cap and how much that might hurt them? Uh, my answer is we don't know. Um, what I what I know about general managers in all organizations is they they get up their marker and they write out on their on their whiteboard, okay, here are all of the options that our pro hockey people have come up with to fill out our roster. And here is the price that we're prepared to pay on all of these pieces. And I'm, I'm absolutely guarantee you there is not just one plan that Ken mm-hmm. Holland has to fill out his roster. So if he ended up paying a million and a half dollars more on Duncan Keith than he wanted to, fair, he will fair, event, fair amount, yeah. right? He will have anticipated, I may have to overpay over here to get this. I will do that if I'm confident I can fill this hole for this price. You build that into your plan. Now, he still has to do that. Don't get me wrong. Is there risk in this deal? Yes. There absolutely is. Anybody's kidding you if you says there, if, if they say there isn't. But I'm, but I'm telling you, NHL general managers plan for this. So if a million and a half dollars goes this way, it's like a credit card. You have to pay it back. It comes from somewhere else. Um, so Unless the question, Tampa. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't, don't get us started, right? <laughs> so my, my honest answer, and I don't mean to be glib, is we don't know. Uh, and there's a bigger conversation to, have, to be had sometime about armchair general managers, surely of which we are three. I don't mean I don't I don't mean I don't mean to point the finger at anybody else out there. Um, But there's a whole lot of context and perspective and other details that we don't know and shouldn't know, frankly, that that will be behind every deal by every team. Uh, And so does Ken Holland have a track record of being a winner and winning Stanley Cups? Yes. Um, So I have a reasonable amount of confidence uh, that he knows what he's doing. For all we know, I mean, there there's there can be overriding motivations that we don't know, but do they fit the facts that we know? I mean, uh, here here's a theory that to me uh, fits the fits the fact that uh, that uh, Ken Holland was given instructions to cut down the cash budget this year because the team's taken a bath, and David mentioned this in the last podcast. 
And if Daryl Cates said, we want that Keith contract and we want all of it, because the more of the cap hit we take, the more we save because we only have to pay a fraction of that cap hit. And so we want you to get that guy no matter what. I mean, that that fits the facts. And the Oilers got the guy no matter what, and they sweetened the pot to get him. So, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just saying from an outsider's view, without any of this inside knowledge, I'm agreeing with Kurt, there's a lot of different ways that something could be explained that's sort of coming from left field a little bit. Optically, we, that would look good because they're still right. at the cap. They still look like a cap team, but mm-hmm. they're yeah. they're covering some of the other money. And 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 as I said, I, my guess, and I could well be higher or a bit lower. Kate's lost $50 million last year is my guesstimate, and it could be more than that. That's a mm-hmm. lot of money. And who knows what they're going to lose this year on the Oilers, like where, where right. this is going to go. So if they are, Mm-hmm. I, I think it would be a good plan for the for the owners actually to have said that in their messaging about this deal. So one of the factors is this this the, the new reality of the owners is that we are a bit of a budget team. We have to think we have to think along these lines. We have to think about the real dollars out and real dollars in. Last year we we were slaughtered by COVID in terms mm-hmm. of that, and we are we're worried we're going to be slaughtered again, and we're worried about the future. And that might be a really hard message for many fans to accept because they say, oh, Daryl Cates has $3.5 billion. It's like, can you use some of that money on, you know, they, they don't have a right. super sophisticated take or inside, well, they don't have real knowledge on on Cates because what matters for Cates and any businessman is if, if you're in this moment, if you're taking in $10 million, but you have to pay out $100 million, if, even if you have a lot of money, you're in trouble. And right. um, we don't know what the situation is with Cates anyway. That's one more well, thing we, we don't. And we know, I mean, there are other places in the budget where you can look at it and say, uh, you know, James Neal, the owners are paying $2.5 million more for James Neal than they would have paid for Milan Lucic, whose contract was front-loaded, and he only had about $4 million a year left to be paid out at a $6 million cap hit, and instead they're paying now a $6.5 million cap hit for Neal and the cap retention. I mean, that's that's real money that's gone out the door because of that trade. And maybe Kate's is saying enough of this. I mean, David, I think you and I calculated $20 million over the years of, oh, of losses of salary versus uh, cap hit on various transactions. Oh, yeah. just, you know, just Ryan, in that Ryan, one area. Ryan, Ryan Whitney and uh, Lugo Wisnowski and all the way on forward. Uh, and so this is a rare opportunity maybe from his perspective to turn the tables and, 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 and cut out a an actual cash expense and balance those books a little bit. And if that's what's driving Ken Holland, then then maybe we're pointing finger at the in the wrong direction. We as armchair quarterbacks are always looking at it from the competitive point of view. It's all about cap hit cash. We don't care. The owner's got bottomless pockets, right? Well, maybe he doesn't. My only comment about the armchair GMs thing is this: like, especially when you're talking about trades and players. Kurt, Kurt, you made a great comment that you'd seen Keith a few times, but you're throwing that out the window. That is such a smart thing to do, like in terms of evaluating Duncan Keith. If you only watched him three, four, five games, you're watching even worse, like little clips take posted on Twitter by people who, uh, with an axe to grind about this. He sure deal. got like, beat on that one play, didn't he? Man, oh, yeah. Oh, well, look at that, yeah. Like, <laughs> and trust me, I had that thrown at me about 50 times. <laughs> Same clip. <laughs> I saw clip. that. I saw <laughs> that. <laughs> have, and I've learned this the hard way. You have to have tremendous humility about your ability to assess the value of players and their future performance, especially. 
It's really hard to do. It's really hard to get it right. Even players we see every day, like Caleb Jones, who I've seen play hundreds, several hundred games now, I was baffled by how bad he was this year. I thought he was going to step up and it didn't happen. You know, you know Jeff Petrie, of course, when I look back at my numbers, the, the, the way that I rate players, he also took a step back though one year. In 2012-13, he took a step back and had bad scoring chance data the way we measure players. And, and then he came on strong. The same could happen with Caleb Jones. I'm less confident now that that's going to happen with Caleb Jones than I was a year ago. But so my point is, and, and you'll go next there, Kurt. My point is, we, even if you see players every day, it is hard to predict their future performance. And for players that you're not looking at every single day, and you're going by on-ice numbers, which are earned by large groups of players and can mislead, they don't always mislead. They can be a red flag. I will give you that. They can be a darn good red flag. But they can also really mislead. This this year, you look at the bottom 20, like people are all over Duncan Keith because of ex, his ex, expected goals for percentage. Look at the bottom 20 defensemen for go, expected goals for percentage. And you're going to see a litany of, of defensemen that, that NHL teams would give their eye, eye teeth for. There's Quinn Hughes, there's Seth Jones, there's Zach Wierenski, there's Josh Morrissey. I saw Josh Morrissey play in the playoffs. <laughs> he was he was he, he was good. He is yep. a good player, and he was he's in the bottom twenty for expected goals for percentage for defensemen in the NHL this year. It is a stat which measures group play. So when when Josh Morrissey was on the the ice, the the Jets did not get good shot metrics. They did not get what they what they would have hoped as a unit. But how much can you blame on Josh Morrissey? Well, I watched him play, and I'm questioning that, how much he was at blame. I'm going to say it's probably his teammates who was out, who were out there oh, with him in the matchups. Tucker yeah. Pullman? Yeah, exactly, you know. Bruce. So with Keith, we this is a red flag. His expected goals for percentage and all the shot metrics are a red flag. But if you are certain based right. on that information, you're getting it wrong. You're doing stats wrong. You're not... You're not, you're not being a good armchair GM, in my view. You're getting it wrong. And you should have some, you should know what the stats say and they don't say and have a little bit of humility about that. There's more than one interpretation. I mean, you could look back at Duncan Keith and all the years he spent with Brent Seabrook and say, well, since he broke up with Seabrook, his numbers have started to slide. And one interpretation is that um, Keith, you know, is, is, trying to carry lesser partners than Brent Seabrook, which is almost certainly true. But another interpretation was that Seabrook was carrying Keith, and without him, uh, Keith is a, a lot lower player. I mean, there's different ways to interpret even the same information. So, I was in favor of the Brent <laughs> trade to Edmonton. That's one of my big humbling moments. <laughs> Looking back and thinking, oh my God, I was in 20, 2015, I thought it was okay to trade Oscar Clefbaum for Brent Seabrook. I thought that was okay. And and it's that's what we all have to do. You know, I have a record of it because I write about it. I didn't even know I said that, but I was looking back at some other information <laughs> and I and I stumbled across this. Like I'm famous for the one for suggesting the order should have traded for Jamie Alexiak back in the day mm. and, and being incorrect about that in that moment, at least. Um, but there's others where I've gotten it wrong. And like mm -hmm. all these people who are saying the numbers say Duncan Keith is a bad player. They also told me in the past that Leon Dreisaitl sh should be traded and that Benoit Pouliot and Mark Fain were good signings and Patrick <laughs> O'Sullivan was a good signing. And they they have a they should inspect their own record. And 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 some of them actually do approach it with a lot of humility. I'm seeing a, lo a lot of the people who believe in on ice analytics kind of backing off now. 
and having a, a little bit more what I would call a sober attitude and being more open to other information and to backing off the the aggressiveness right. that has characterized that group that group of debaters and hockey fans in the past. So I'm seeing, but not all. I can assure you, it's not all of the people in that group. They're, they are some of them are fiercely wedded to the idea that that number tells the story, and I just think, wow, Kurt. I wanted to slide this in, and it was because you started making that point that I thought it was germane. Um, an important consideration here, it's not a guarantee there are no guarantees. An important consideration here is that Duncan Keith is going from a bad team to quite a good team. He's going from rookie D partners who were adventures in babysitting to probably Adam Larson. And from Jeremy Colleton's defensive... <laughs> Yeah, from from Colleton's defensive structure to Dave Tippett's structure. There's a lot there to suggest that even if Duncan Keith plays, performs at the level that he did last year, he'll be way better because he's on a better team in a better situation. He still has to do that, but there's a lot of arrows that point in that direction. Well, Adam Larson would be his most solid partner he's had since Brent Seabrook. A similar kind of player, actually. And they have lots and in common, I think. They do have lots in common. And, um, yeah, that's why people were excited about Brett Seabrook to to give, you know, to <laughs> back in 2015. Got to cut us a little slack. Lots of people were excited about Brett Seabrook back, wasn't back like. then. But, uh, yeah, what's not to like is he was a 30-year-old player heading into his 30s, and they, they tend to decline, <laughs> and sometimes they decline super, super duper fast, super duper fast. Well, they got hurt. Are they because they get hurt because they get almost all of them get hurt. They start the wear and tear of professional hockey catches up uh, is probably the, the maybe the biggest factor in that decline for for the players. Well, for Duncan Keith, 1,327 games, regular season and playoffs over for 16 years. That is a hell of a lot of hockey. And how many yeah. games has he missed? Like just 50, a handful, 50, right? 50. Yeah. That's, a, like, that's he's, astounding. He's something over 96% of Chicago's games that he's played. And when he does play, he plays almost half the game. A lot of, a lot, a lot of minutes. Alrighty. Well, Ken Colin got his gray beard. He got his gray beard. <laughs> so gray beards, you know, we should all be, we should all be thinking. <laughs> all right. All right. For the gray beard. Let's hear it for the gray beards. <laughs> Uh, okay, Adam Larson. Um, there's some question whether he, I think the best information. It's hard to know what the best information is on this because some insiders, some insiders who really know what they're talking about, think it's up in the air now, and mm -hmm. that he is going to test the market. And you know, there might be the suggestion that is he just is he is he testing the market or maybe he's trying to grind down, um, grind the orders into it. You know, J.P. Barry, his agent, he's trying to grind the orders down. I, I Dr Darren Dreger said something which was kind of interesting. I probably should find the exact quote because uh, it was the most definitive statement that I've heard lately that uh, Adam Larson is going to sign with the Oilers. So he, he, Dreger, he was giving all this insider information about a phone call between Ken Holland and J.P. Barry, Larson's agent, on on um, Oscar Clefbaum and whether. Clefbaum was going to return. So it was clear to me, at least, that he had e that Dreger had either talked to Holland about the conversation or J.P. Barry. And then he he segued that into a, a conversation about Larson. And he said, 
if you get Larson extended, which they will, now your top four is going to be Adam Larson and Darnell Nurse is your top four pairing. So the, again, this is someone who clearly had talked to either Ken Holland or Barry, and he was saying, if you get Larson extended, which they will. So th th that might be just reading too much into it, wishful thinking on my part, because I really want Larson to sign with the Oilers. I think Adam Larson is was the Oilers' top defenseman at even strength last year. Um, and if they lose him, they'll be missing him for years to come. So it seemed like Dreger was saying that it sounds like a done deal. And, and about a month ago, that was the overriding theme in Edmonton, that this he's going to sign here, this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. oh, 90, like the hockey insiders, 90% sure, 85% sure, that kind of thing. Those numbers were bandied about on the radio. What's your take, Kurt? Do you think, he, where, where do you think this is at? And what do, you, what, what do you think about Larson as well as a player? Yeah, um, I'm only mildly cooler on Larson than you are. I, I see, generally speaking, the same value you do. The, the, the only hesitation I have on, on, on Adam is physically how will he stand up? He's had back issues in the past. And I've said this publicly before. You kind of never know about that kind of stuff. If yeah. I set that aside, I think we, you and I see the same player and I see the same value. I suspect all three of us do. Um, I was led to believe for the longest time that the, the Larson deal was a lock and that the offer was on the table. Well, I understand that's still the case. Um, but I did hear secondhand today that someone who quite likely could talk to both sides, both the general manager and the agent, say... I wouldn't be surprised if there's messaging in that conversation that, well, he may see what the market offers. I, 100%, I read into that, well, that's that's bargaining, right? I know it's on the table. Uh, I, I've looked at your depth chart. Uh, I know that you need Adam Larson back. Maybe I can get another 500000 out of you. That's complete conjecture on my part. I didn't hear that from anybody but I heard that suggestion from somebody else and I thought, you know, there's some logic to follow in that. Um, I still think it's very likely Adam Larson signs here, uh, but there's a little bit of doubt in my mind where there wasn't before. How much would you uh, pay? Like maximum, like what, what would you see as like the maximum you would go to? How, what term and what cap hit? Um, Yourself. Yeah, I can't say I've thought a lot about terms, so I won't. <laughs> BSC with that. Uh, I sus strongly suspect the Oilers have offered him about what he was making. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I think it's around $4 million. Uh, Term, I don't pretend to know. I'm, I'm sure a guy Larson's age is, is going to want three, four plus years because this is this is his 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 chance right it's probably his only real chance at a bigger contract as an unrestricted free agent um but i won't pretend to have put a lot of thought into that i do think the offers right around four million what's your take bruce well at this point i mean the the, the thing about acquiring duncan keith is now they have to protect him and I've already signed Ryan Nugent Hopkins, uh, which has basically forced, and Ken Holland has said they're going under the 731 model. Well, if your three defensemen are Keith, Nurse, and, <clears throat> and Bear, uh, there's no room for a Larson on your protected list. 
So the idea of Larson going to market, well, he's going to two markets. First of all, he's going to the Seattle only meat market that's going to be taking place in the next few days where Seattle can talk to all the free agents, both restricted and unrestricted of every team. And if they come to terms with one of them and sign them, uh, they're, they're fully within their rights to do that, but they would then get that player instead of choosing someone else off of that team. So if they were to sign Adam Larson, at least that would let Edmonton off the hook for uh, having to give up another player. Um, but when that Seattle window closes, if Larson isn't signed, there's a f- further window of a few days where only the Oilers can negotiate with him. And I think you'll see after that Seattle draft a number of players on a number of teams that have been negotiating for an indefinite period. All of a sudden, they come to terms, you know, a day or two uh, before free agency opens. And I, I think that's probably the way with Adam Larson. And if they were to announce a signing of him this week, then I think that would trigger a trade of Ethan Bear, probably for a forward before the expansion draft. In in the negotiation front, I'm just going to make a quick point, Kurt. I think that the, maybe the Oilers raising, like we've heard the rumor of Tyson Berry maybe being still in the Oilers picture. So maybe there's grinding down in both directions from, well, we might consider free agency. Well, we might consider Tyson Berry kind of uh, back and forth, kind of low, you know, back and forth, low level negotiating. I, I, I think that the indication is that he, he does want to be with the Edmonton Oilers, that he's part of the leadership, he, like he identifies with this team. I just here's my here's my worry. Another team's going to really value Adam Larson. They're going to value Adam Larson the way I value Adam Larson, which would mean more money for Adam Larson. And there might be some team that does analytics the way I do them. Lots of NHL like Dave, the way I do them is was developed 40 years ago by Roger Nielsen. There's lots of NHL coaches who do this work. Dave Tippett does this work himself, scoring chance work. They will know from that if they do that work. They will know. They might have the sense of Adam Larson's value that other that uh, that is unusual. That might be a little bit higher than other people in the market. So my, I, I'm just concerned that he's going to go elsewhere and we'll lose the player because I, I just think he's a he's Kurt raised the the injury issue, uh, which is a very valid issue. Other than that concern, I just think wow, this this is a guy. If you're going to try to compete for the cup for the next three four years, Adam Larson, he he will help you win a Stanley Cup. Kurt, what was your uh, what was your point? I don't think Adam Larson is going to walk away from the situation he has in Edmonton to make another million dollars. Just like, what if it was a million a year? That's what I mean. Okay. I don't. He's I, already made twenty-five million on his last contract, and he's going to get a good good contract. Even here, he's going to be an eight-figure contract over three years uh, minimum, I'd say. Yep. And if I'm Ken Holland talking to Larson and his agent right now, J.P. Barry, is it? Uh, I would be saying, well, you know, we just pulled in your next defensive partner. He's a pretty good player. This guy, Duncan Keith, he's been, you know, he's been around, seen a few things, done a few things. And uh, 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 we, ha- we we envision him as being your partner. But because we got him, that means we're not quite in a position to sign you today. So let's just keep negotiating for the next few days. And you go and check out, see what's out there in Seattle. And you come back to us after that and we'll work it out. That's you know, kind of the soft handshake agreement that I think might hold sway in this case. Hope they do that. I, my concern is I that J.P. Too. Barry says, Dunk, your new partner, uh, at, uh, <laughs> J.P. Barry says, your, your new partner, the, the, Adam's new partner is making $5.5 million a year. <laughs> That's got a nice ring to it. I like that. $5.5 5 a year. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, that's fine. 
Well, anyway. you know, and, and if Seattle says, yeah, uh, yeah, Adam, we'll give you five and a half million dollars. What what should Ken Holland say? He should say, enjoy the Space Needle. Well, a certain point, no. I'd give Adam Larson five and a half a year for three years. I wouldn't. I would. Because uh, I value him that much. I think he's I think he's a hell of a hockey player and crucial to the Oilers right now. And I, I'd certainly like to see, I'd, I'm more in favor of an overpay for him than I am for Duncan Keith or any any number of other players. And I, I do think that's really at the high end. Like, that's the highest. Yeah, oh, yeah. And I don't think he's going to get that offer. I don't think other was, people value him. Like I was going to say, I, David, how would that extra million and a half dollars harm Ken Holland's ability to build the rest of his roster? Right. Same, <laughs> bring, same question. Bring the question back again. Same, same question. And, you know, the same answer is, you know, well, I, I sure wish he would have done better. Yeah. But uh, David would do it twice. <laughs> well, I would have done it once. I wouldn't have done it with Keith. So that's where we're. Where yeah, we you are. can't undo the other one. The, the money <laughs> yeah. you would have saved on Keith, you would get to Larson. Yeah. We're all we're, we're pretending we are the GM here. Okay, uh, let's let's move along to uh, what other moves the owners might make. And um, like I, I, again, it's just so for me, it's so difficult. Like because we hear names like Zach Hyman and uh, Thomas Tatar and. Jaden Schwartz, and again, I'm not in a position to judge any of these players. Not I, I, I saw, I did see Hyman play a little bit more, and liked what I saw, but I didn't see him enough either to really have a fair and accurate assessment of his real value and to be was certain about what the Edmonton Oilers should do. And my other concern about Hyman is he's, I hear he's had two knee surgeries already. He's 29. He's heading into his 30s. This is these are all red flags. Uh, he's never been a big scorer. On the plus side, he's a great glue player. He did great. He great even strength scoring numbers the last two years. He's he's he any any and as I've said before, he kind of reminds me of Chris. You know the Chris Kunitz idea of that great two way winger to play with your top center like Kunitz did with Sidney Crosby. So what are you guys? What are your hopes and fears? I guess as we head into this next part of the uh, free of the NHL offseason. Well, he sounds like the next uh, David Clarkson, doesn't he? With all, all those attributes you just gave. I mean, remember the the, the pitting war that thankfully Oilers lost on uh, David Clarkson, who was, you know, the same like a over overperforming, uh, consistently hard nosed player. I think scored 30 goals in his platform year, and he shot the lights out, highest career shooting percentage, and uh, Toronto wound up paying for that. Uh, I think the window there's still a window right now before the protected list got declared on Friday, uh, where the Oilers have, if you look at the guys that they have currently under contract that they must protect, uh, I count zero goalies, uh, three defensemen, and five forwards. And they're talking we're going 7-3-1. Well, you could trade for some team out there has got two goalies and they're terrified they're going to lose one and, and they could get better value by putting them on the market. Maybe they can find a goalie that way. And the same goes for forwards. Once you get by uh, Dreisaitl and McDavid and Nugent Hopkins and, of course, Yamamoto and Pugliarvi, those are your five. Well, we we're talking about guys like Josh Archibald, Zach Cassie, and Tyler Benson. There are better forwards out there. And other teams might have that have eight. And, they, well, we can only protect seven of these guys. And what are we going to do with this eighth guy? They'll take him for sure. Maybe we can trade him for a defenseman or, you know, a, a player that doesn't have to be exposed in the expansion draft. And Edmonton's got a couple of prospects that are that are sheltered that way that that maybe could uh, c- could 
get somebody back on a cheaper than he might be priced because this team is under the gun of this uh, this expansion protected list and they can't protect everybody. So th- this next two days to me is very interesting. Great. I think a guy like uh, Alex Kalorn is possible. Um, I'm not sure they'll fill that left wing position via trade, though. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you can get a really good left winger that only costs money. Um, mm-hmm. And I do think that Zach Hyman is among their top, if not their number one choice. Question I would ask both of you, who would make your team better today? Who's the better player? Zach Hyman or Taylor Hall? I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> you go first, Bruce, Dave. go ahead, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to vote for Thomas Tatar. Uh, <laughs> you see, I, I, I'm just hesitant. I'm really hesitant about long-term. I see both of these players getting long-term deals, big money deals into their 30, 30s. And they, these deals, the others already committed to one in Nugent Hopkins. Yep. They want to make another bet like that. They've got a, you know, I, I really do favor the Tyson Berry deal where you're looking for that player who slips through a little bit, suddenly finds himself unwanted, and you can bring him in on a one or two year deal at a reasonable amount and avoiding the Hyman Hall thing. Let someone else take that, make that bet. As enticing as those two players are and seem, and would make everybody like it would just the endorphin rush of Oilers fans if they signed either of those guys in the first minute. I mean, there might be a huge faction out there against Hyman now. I don't know if that's formed up yet, but the, just the general fan base, like we got Toronto's top winger, he's talked about for Team Canada. Yeah, like mm-hmm. I get all of that, but mm-hmm. I prefer to stay away from the sugar rush and eat your meat and vegetables, which is taking care of your cap. Don't sign many players long-term into their thirties. Avoid that. If you can spend your money elsewhere. And, and if that means promoting youth like Tyler Benson and Cooper Marodi and Ryan McLeod uh, and Dylan Holloway and going betting on that, as opposed to betting on the big dollar guy, I'm okay with that too. So Sorry, Kurt, I didn't answer your question because my answer is neither. Is, that's my answer. <laughs> yeah. Bruce? You've gone, as you say, you went eight years with R&H. And I think for now we can we can call him a left wing. Certainly one of him or Dreisaitl is a left wing. So there's one spot open on left wing. To seal that off for four or five or seven years, you're basically telling Dylan Holloway uh, there's no path forward. To get a to get a spot in the top in the top six, because we we've got it locked up. So I'm kind of I'm kind of on that one year. I mean, St. Louis did it with Mike Hoffman. Uh, this what Edmonton did with Tyson Berry. I don't think it worked out quite so well with um, uh, with um, for St. Louis and Hoffman. But uh, you know, I mean, that's the sort of player that could slide through the cracks. That um, you know is you know. Got some nice scoring pedigree who um, uh, is looking for a place to bolster his statistics and go, hey, come to Edmonton and you'll either get to play with Connor McDavid or Leon Dreisaitl. How does that sound? And the answer is, uh, sounds pretty good. Where do I sign? And and uh, I with the team, a situation where neither the team nor the player, like the Tyson Berry one, is really wants to commit long term. They just want to set themselves up for the next go around. So 
I'm I'm uh, I'm kind of on board with you, David, on that. Taylor Hall on a shorter term deal, like a two year deal where he gets paid, like let's say he gets paid a bit more, six million for two years each year or seven million, like if you're really going crazy, like if he would take that, uh, that's kind of enticing. I don't see, I think Zach Hyman has got to get paid. I just think he has a responsibility to himself and his family. Mm -hmm. Taylor Hall's made a lot of money. Zach Hyman is not. He's already been, you know, and and again, you know, it's easy for me to say that he doesn't want more millions. Of course, everybody wants more millions who has millions, just like everyone who has more hundred thousands wants more hundred thousands. Now everyone wants more money and it's easy to say, well, you should turn that down. And so I don't say it. I think players should go for the best dollar amount. And if Adam Larson did get a better contract offer, he should definitely take it. Anyone. I think that's the, that's it. it. They should think hard about it. If Mm -hmm. it's significant, if it's a million dollars a year difference. So if Hall got a short term deal, Kurt, where he was getting uh, like two year deal, big money, enough to entice him here for two years, I would go for that. But other than that, on a short, I, I want short-term deals for players uh, who are heading into their 30s and, and, and as a general rule. And I, I, I can see bending that for for uh, for Nugent Hopkins. I wasn't I wasn't happy with that, though. So I, oh, I get yeah. it. I get it bending for a player that you, ha- that you know that you have. I still worry that's not going to work out. But bending it for players that you that you're not so sure about like a six six years six million dollar for Hyman. So Kurt, what do you think? Six million for six? Let's say Hyman ends up at five point five to six on a on a long term deal. Would you do that? I think Hyman will get six or north of. Um, yeah. And like you, I'd be very hesitant about that. Oh really? I'm not at all sure that Taylor Hall isn't the better player. He certainly has been the better player over the course of his career. Uh, and I think you could probably get Taylor for a, for a million dollars or, or so less than Zach Hyman's going to get paid this year. Um, the problem with that, and it goes to your comment, David, is I think Taylor, in exchange for that, would ask for term. And I agree, there are pitfalls that come with term when you have a player that age. I would, Bruce, you made a great point on Holloway being blocked. I would just, mm-hmm. I would much rather, I saw Dylan Holloway play a number of games last year, like not a huge number enough to be, sh- to be certain. But what I saw uh, of him, especially in college when he wasn't hurt, he was hurt at the World Juniors. He just knocked my socks off, his his speed and his, his forechecking. You know, who's to say that he can't give the Oilers everything that Zach Hyman would give them next year, as early as next year? Mm-hmm. Um, it's too bad that Dylan Holloway got hurt because he would have gone to the AHL and played games. And then we would have a much better sense of him as a, you know, how he stacks up at the AHL level. You know, if he had crushed at the AHL level this year, we, we'd know, we'd know that we don't. So anyway, I just don't like the idea of him being blocked long-term by two left wingers, Nugent Hopkins, Hyman. Just, I just, uh, there's just been too many bad contracts, you know, players that age that fresh in my mind, Milan Lucic, James Neal, top of the list. And I hope the Oilers, I'm hoping that Toronto Maple Leafs signed Zach Hyman and the Boston Bruins signed Taylor Hall and the Oilers, you have to deal with it. And then they can look at someone like Jaden Schwartz, who who may turn out to be of, of, of Hyman, Hall and Schwartz. Jaden Schwartz may turn out to be the best player next year. And it's not clear to me why he wouldn't be other than injuries. If he's, he if he's healthy. Hurt. He always seems he to get hurt. Get him. Jeez, every time I watch St. Louis, he's either out or he gets hurt in that game, it seems like. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, there, here's where the idea of, of a trade isn't bad because, I mean, 
I'm, I'm looking, uh, as I've been doing quite a lot lately, at the roster of the Tampa Bay Lightning. And here they have uh, 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 proven players under contract. Their whole core 12 is under contract uh, for next season already. And all but one of them are making uh, over four million bucks, and the one, the other one's making two point nine. Like they pay their players that are their their feature players. Alex Kalorn that uh, Kurt mentioned earlier, four point four five million for two more years, or Andre Palat, five point three million for one more year. And here you have Tampa. They're up against it for the cap. They're up against it for who they can protect. Uh, in the expansion draft, they're probably hoping they lose a contract to Seattle. But if they can trade a contract and still lose another one to Seattle, so much the better. So uh, they would probably be more open to taking a trade off, even for uh, a you know, lifelong bolt like Killorn or Palat, uh, a halfway reasonable trade offer, and they might jump at it because they, they, they have moves they got to make. They have to clear cap. And so if you can get a, a player that's worth the money, and I would suggest either Palat or, or Kaloran have proven that, you know, they, they've earned what they're getting paid and you want to bring in winning experience and so on into Edmonton. Well, these guys have had successes a lot more recently even than Duncan Keith. And, and they're short-term deals. This is the good thing about the yeah. Keith deal, right? Like no matter how Duncan Keith turns out, it's two years. Like yeah. that is not forever. Like it's not this It's not this major disaster for the Edmonton Oilers, even if it doesn't turn out that well, because it's just a two-year deal. And, you know, there is the opportunity cost those two years. It hurts if it doesn't work out. But the same with Killorn, Palat, all these players on shorter-term deals, go for that, you know. The one we brought up, Schmidt. I know his deal's four years, and that had a little. That's a little bit long. That had can be concerned actually with Nate mm-hmm. Schmidt. So yeah, these short-term deals. That's that's what I'm all over. I think that's the. And then, I really believe fundamentally in building through youth. The Oilers have, for the first time in a long, long time since the early 2000s, a whole group of young players who look really promising. And I hate it when players, when I hear players like Tyler Benson being downgraded, like well, he hasn't he hasn't made it yet, and maybe he's not going to like give him a chance in Edmonton, coach. You know, this is this might be one of the Tippett's problems is like he's given some young players a chance. Like he's, you know, why not give Benson and Marodi and McLeod that whole line even a chance, a run of games. That's what I'd like to see rather than go long term on a big dollar guy. As much as I dream that. Hyman might be Kunitz to Crosby, as much as I dream that. But uh, well, if you were in the last year of your contract, would you do that? Uh, do do what, Kurt? What, what you're do you... saying, Tippett should do? Because let's let's say oh, I agree tip with it. you, but tip if you're, yeah. Tippett, you're going into the last year of your contract, do you say, "Oh, time to ride the kids"? Well, these aren't. Here's the thing, Bruce, the, uh, Kurt. These aren't kids in the sense that they're fresh out of the package, out of junior. These are AHL veterans. They've played three years in the AHL. McLeod's played two years. These are pro players in, from the Oilers system, trained in the Oilers way. And yeah, I think it's actually time for him to say, I'm going to trust the process here and invest. And, and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to go for it with these guys. Cause, cause what we've seen organizationally is these guys have had tremendous, they were the top plus minus line in the AHL last year. And when it comes to rating groups of players, like a line, I put some weight in goals plus minus. Well, so the, the thing is, David, you're betting these guys, I'd say. The thing is, you're kind of preaching to the choir here. Uh, what, I, <laughs> what, what I'm yeah. saying is, look at Dave Tippett's past. 
What is there in Dave Tippett's past to suggest he would do that? Well, he did play Baron Jones. Like, he did give them a, a shot, a, a real shot. In and Arizona, what did he do? Yeah, you don't have to look back. I think, actually, Kurt, he, he, my he, memory says he did break in a couple of players every year. Like, at least when he was a successful coach early in, in Dallas. And, again, and there was a couple of young players every year that he would break in. And I think when he got that, – that happened less as he went along, maybe because there was less good players to break in. But when he – Less. Yeah, so I, I think it's in Tippett to do that. I don't think he's averse to that. I think he's done that in the past. So I I hope he does that. I and um, as you know, I'm a Dave Tippett fan, but I think that I think that would be him going a bit against type. It may be not where he's at now. I'll, I'll grant you that, Kurt. But he did he did uh, play Baron Jones and uh, Yamamoto and Puliyarvi. So he has been breaking in a couple players every year. So it, uh, what I'm saying is, like, let's say, let's see two or three players get broken in this year again. So McLeod and um, maybe Benson. And if Sam Rukov, who crushed it in the KHL last year, as far as I'm concerned, not just statistically, but from watching him play, uh, maybe he's maybe he's your your third pairing defenseman. On, I, think, on I think Dave stylistically is a win now coach. Um, which there's part of that that you can really like. Uh, and part of it is that he doesn't trust rookies that much and trust veterans more. And it's just my instinct and in looking at Dave's past tells me that there's more of that in Dave than there is giving the kids a chance. I, I think you're right, Kurt. I, I'll ex- I, I accept that as, as probably the case with Tippett, but he has broken in young, young players as well. He certainly gave McLeod a good run in the playoffs. And McLeod earned it. Like his play in the, what I saw in the regular season was a solid two-way center. And I was surprised. I, I didn't think he'd be that good defensively. And if he can keep that up, wow, as a third, that's a huge position, third line center. If he can, if he can do that, that's major problem solved. Let's wrap it up with final thoughts. Bruce will, unless you have something to build off of that, but if you have, or final thoughts or both. Well, I have a final thought that's completely uh, uh, against topic, but I did hear your fine interview on Oilers Now today with Bob Stoffer, and the subject came up about the uh, fancy stats of the Oilers of the 80s, which is a topic near and dear to my heart. I so wish we had the full the full palette of uh, fancy stats, because that's the era that I calibrate my own statistical thinking from, where I think it's not all just about how many shots you generate, but it's how good are those shots. And the Edmonton Oilers were so far off the chart in that department. Uh, I'll just cite you a single example, 86-87. The Oilers finished 17th in the 21-team league in shots on goal, and they scored 54 more goals than any other team in the NHL. And their, their conversion rate was north of 15%. Uh, and, in fact, they were so far ahead of the league that the second-place team I think it was Philadelphia Flyers for shooting percentage were closer to the last place team than they were to the Oilers. That's how big the difference was. So it wasn't about Corsi. It wasn't about shots. It was all about shot quality, grade A scoring chances, one-timers into wide open nets after four-way passing play kind of kind of uh, chance production. Yeah. And so that's, uh, that's why I've always kind of had this sort of, you know, it's percentages are just as important as, uh, as shot volumes and uh that uh but so bob asked that question and i tweaked that memory and i thought i'll mention it on the podcast today so 
it's a complicated area because the shot metrics people who I often disagree with right from the start, they always placed a lot of value in scoring chances. They always mm-hmm. were trying to get a proxy. What they were trying to get with Corsi and Fenwick was actually a proxy for scoring chances, as I understand it. That's what they really wanted to know. And that wasn't being measured at the time. And as they have moved forward, they have uh, narrowed in on expected goals for. And what they're actually looking at in a very scientific way, and I think a pretty strong way, generally speaking, is shot quality. They're mm-hmm. zeroing yep. in on shot. So when they yep. rate Duncan 100%. Keith, it's not on Corsi. It's not on, that's, that's right. you know, yesterday's stat. They're going on a much better stat. And I think if you went with expected goals for with the Oilers in the uh, 1980s, that they would have high. It would have been very high, because there's there the quality of their shots was obviously super duper high. I mean, what you know, how many five alarm scoring chances? What in terms of a Wayne Gretzky pass to Yari Curry for the one timer? That's a fifty percent shot, like that. I'm getting close to fifty percent shot. So that's like at the very highest level of scoring chance, and the owners were consistently generating that kind of very highest. The odds of scoring chance game after game after game and to give credit to the analytics guys today that's what they're trying to that's what they're trying to get out of the data that they have so yeah well yari curry shot 25 percent north of 25 percent four seasons in a row and north of 20 percent seven seasons in a row and the oilers same seven seasons as a team are over 15.5 percent every year it wasn't like they had a hot year where everything was going in they just kept on doing it and kept on doing it throughout really from 81 until Gretzky was traded. And even with some sort of uh, echo uh, thereafter. And I think the fancy stats, one of the things that I've often thought is that there's not the historical perspective they're starting to be, but when they started in 2007, it's a pretty strong line. 2007-08 was the first season of fancy stats. Well, that was the year the Detroit Red Wings were just dominant. And they, they dominantly outshot teams by, I think the average shots was something like 32 to 22 or something like that per game for the Red Wings. And they had league average shooting percentage, league average save percentage, but they won all their games three to two because they outshot everybody three to two. And so this was shot volume. And, hey, look, sure works for Detroit. It must be all about shot volume. And if you look at it over a longer period of time, you see some teams that do it one way and some teams that do it the other. And then the odd dominant team that is great at both. And when that happens, that team doesn't lose. Very look well. out. Look out. Yeah. Leon Dreisaitl's shooting percentage. Yeah. Leon Dreisaitl's <laughs> shooting percentage the last year, three years, 21.6%, 19.7% and 18.5%. And we consistently, we track grade A shots, a high percentage of his shots, the highest on the team year in, year out are grade A shots. So, you know, we're, we're it, analysis is getting fairly sophisticated now, more sophisticated it was than 10 years. I mean, 10 years ago, I was in a different place. I was just looking at goals. Right. You know, I wasn't looking at scoring chances. I didn't have the technology, the PVR, that made it, it possible to do the kind of analysis that we do today. So there's much better information for us and for all kinds of fans and analytically. Kurt, thoughts, final thoughts? Uh, uh, the Oilers traded Dylan Wells to Carolina huh. for future considerations today. Um, What's that uh, about? They, they may have just been uh, doing the kid a solid and moving him to another organization where he might have a better shot. Uh, or they may be uh, clearing that contract spot for a reason. The con- that would have cleared itself in the sense that uh, he's RFA, and I don't think they would have qualified him. But I, I, what I think we'd find here, if we dug deep in the Carolina side of things, 
Is that well satisfy some some uh, responsibility they have to expose a goalie of certain experience in the expansion draft? And now they have Dylan Wells that they can expose uh, in the expansion draft to satisfy. And they may have to issue him at least a, a qualifying offer or sign yes. him. But you may you may see that happen. And what the future considerations are, who knows? I mean, maybe maybe they are. That after the expansion draft until uh, June 28th, Edmonton gets first shot at negotiating with uh, with uh, Marazic. You know, it could be something something like that. That they're scratching each other's back. We can help That's you out there, and you give us a shot here. You know, not squeezing each other, hugging each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> give us another shot was... at Nadelkovic. <laughs> That's what I was hoping it was, Bruce. Something like that. That. Uh... Something that, you know, the Oilers are going to get some small benefit in the future. Maybe a sixth-round draft pick or even a seventh-round draft pick or something like that. Because um, because it, it, I, I was thinking it's probably related to Carolina's expansion draft in some way. So, uh, and I don't know the, their situation closely enough to, to speculate on that. Alrighty. Well, there's going to be more fireworks to come, I'm sure. There's going to be lots of Oilers moves. And uh, one thing we can count on is... Oiler fans with a great amount of certainty and passion will disagree with one another on uh, what Ken Holland did. Go ahead, Kurt. Throw in one final thing. Um, through the course of our hour or so of chatting, uh, all three of us, I think it's fair to say, we're on very different pages mm-hmm. on a lot of these issues. And I think came out of the conversation probably still disagreeing to the same degree that we did before. Uh, but nobody shouted at one another and nobody called one another names. Wasn't that nice? <laughs> no reason to. I'd rather have the conversation. I mean, actually having this conversation and you gave me some stuff on Duncan Keith that I did, that gives me a little bit of a warmer feeling about uh, what he may still have in the tank. And so I think probably we still disagree, but maybe not quite as much. That we got a little bit more of the other person's point of view. Of, you know, I mean, in my case, not being opposed to Duncan Keith so much as I'm just against the terms of the trade. I think they got worked. Yep. Um, there may be re- uh, reasons for that that uh, that we don't know, but that's you know that's uh, that's uh, we're not even necessarily disagreeing on the same thing. I do think Keith is uh, going to improve the Oilers. Alrighty, gents. Thanks for talking today. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.